0: This week, the ABC was reporting on the biggest fears of young people in Australia. The results are in, and apparently what millennials most fear in Australia, believe it or not, according to this survey, is terrorism, number one, and the leadership of our country, number two. Now, of course, survey results are always shaped by the um, answers that you give people to pick from, aren't they? They didn't seem to have options like... I'm afraid of what other people think of me or I'm scared of unpacking the dishwasher. (laughs) I know what teenagers are afraid of. (laughs) Now, I wonder if I asked you what your biggest fears were, how you would answer that. Are you one of two million Australians whose biggest fear is the future um, of their finances? Or maybe you're afraid of something else. Maybe you're afraid of uh, what's going on in the workplace or what the future of your work might be. Or maybe you're afraid that you don't have work. Maybe you're afraid for your kids and what will happen to them as they grow up. Or maybe you're afraid that you um, won't be able to have kids. Maybe you're afraid of relationships. Maybe you're afraid of um, your relationships being too shallow Maybe you're scared of your relationships being too deep. Maybe you're scared that if people find out what you like, they won't like you. Maybe you're scared to talk to people about personal things because you don't want to offend people. Maybe you're just scared of being afraid. You know, you've got anxiety and you've got this cycle and you're actually scared and sometimes you can't put a finger on why, you're just anxious. Maybe you're afraid of dying. That's a big one, isn't it? Maybe you're afraid of losing someone that you love. Maybe you're afraid of getting old or losing your independence or being a burden to others, losing your ability to think properly. Fear is at the very core of who we are, isn't it? Now, obviously, God did not create us to be ruled by fear, If you look back in Genesis 1 and 2, when God created this world, there was nothing to be afraid of. But very quickly, when sin entered the world, something changed. So just listen as I read the first conversation between God and Adam after Adam disobeys God in Genesis 3. Adam is in the garden and it says, The Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I was naked. Oh, I've missed the afraid bit. Can you read this for me, Al? Don't even have your Bible open, Al, bastard. I do. It's, oh, you just, do. it's just open to 1 Samuel. Oh, it's over to 1 Samuel. Here we are. Genesis 3.9. I highlighted the afraid bit to make it stand out, and it highlighted in white. <laughs> this is God speaking to Adam. After he ate the fruit that he wasn't meant to eat. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. I was afraid. See, fear is a direct result of our disobedience of God. And so if the gospel, if the good news about Jesus undoes the curse of Genesis 3, then it must address our fears and it does and that's what we're going to think about this morning and we're going to see how this passage about David and Goliath helps us to understand that because as we listen to the good news that David brings to Israel we're going to see how it is that the gospel brings comfort to us in our fears so let's open to 1 Samuel chapter 17 if you don't have it open already and You've already seen the reading, heard the reading. You know what it is that Israel are afraid of. 1 Samuel 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokka in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes-Daman between Sokka and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill, the Israelites the other, with the valley between them. Now there's this massive valley, this massive flat valley like farmland and each side there's a hill and on one side are the Philistines and on one side are the Israelites, God's people and their enemies. Now it's understandable that the Israelites might be a little bit scared of the Philistines if you remember back to last year in 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines killed 30,000 Israelites in one day. But it's not the Philistines that the Israelites are afraid of, is it? It's one particular Philistine. Verse 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. Now that word for champion is a very interesting word. It doesn't come up anywhere else in the Old Testament. It means literally the man of the in-between. The Israelites are on one side of the valley, the Philistines are on the other, and Goliath is coming down to the no-man's land, to the in-between, and he there will fight on behalf of the Philistines. And he wants the Israelites to provide a man of the in-between so that they can have a fight together to see which nation will win. And as we read about Goliath, their champion, the writer of 1 Samuel wants us to feel the fear of the Israelites, doesn't he? This guy is like the Terminator. He's invincible. Verse 5. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Now that description might not do a lot for you. But those words, some of them are quite technical. They come from different languages. It is a very exotic set of armour. It's like the latest technology of the day. And that's not lost on the Israelites. In terms of outward appearance, this guy is scary. They're afraid. And he knows it. Verse 8, he taunts them. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. It's almost as if he spits in their face and says, I dare you. Who's going to fight me? And it works. They're terrified. Verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and, terrified. and they should be terrified because who's their champion? Who's their man of the in-between who will go down on their behalf and fight for them and secure their safety? There's no one. Their king is the guy that they wanted back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, their great king Saul, who was a head taller than anyone else. But now that Goliath has appeared... Tall Saul doesn't look so impressive, does he? Asafa Powell used to be the fastest man in the world. Then along came Usain Bolt. Who talks about Asafa Powell anymore? Hands up who's even heard of him? Few. He's a nobody. See, that's the problem with big. What do you do when there's someone bigger? Goliath makes King Saul look like a pipsqueak and King Saul is quaking in his boots. Verse 11, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. No wonder, there's only one way this can end. They're going to become the slaves of the Philistines. Did you notice that verse 9? If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your slaves, but if I overcome him, Him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Israel have every reason to be afraid for their their lives, for their children. They have an enemy they can't defeat and they have no one to fight on their behalf. So that's verse 1 to 11. In verse 12, I don't know if you noticed it was being read. It's almost as if someone has grabbed the remote control and changed the TV channel because suddenly we're back in the grassy green fields with David looking after the sheep. And for the rest of today's passage, we get this jumping back and forth between David out in the fields and Goliath and Saul down at the battlefield. David, where everything's calm and peaceful and, you know, the butterflies are flying around. And Saul and Goliath, where it's a panic. If this was a movie, in verses 1 to 11, the subwoofer would be pumping. You'd feel the ground shaking as Goliath marched out. Your mum would be saying, turn it down. Then in verse 12, we're back in Bethlehem and the violins are playing and the sun's shining. Look at verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephratite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons. And in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years. There's sort of no urgency at all about it, is there? Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. Actually, we've been told all this last week. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And then in verse 16, it says someone else grabbed the remote control and we're back in the battle scene. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. And then verse 17, we're back with David, no explanation. Now Jesse said to his son David, "'Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread "'for your brothers and hurry to their camp.' Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of the unit. We've got the bickies and cheese out now. We're switching back and forth between these two scenes, the calm with David and then the panic at the battlefield. And then back with David and then up with Goliath. And we're left thinking things could not be more opposite. What's going to happen when David meets Goliath? What then? Calm or panic when these two worlds collide? Well, verse 13, as David arrives, it is all panic um, for Israel. As David was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Verse 24, when the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. So the Israelites are still terrified because all they can see is Goliath. But David sees things very differently. Verse 26. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? See, David is not panicked because he sees things differently. He sees things as God sees things. Look down at verse 32. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Now, in order to understand what's happening here, we have to remember what happened last week. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, just before the Lord anointed David, when David's older, big, tall, impressive brother wandered out, what did God say? 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the, man's, the things man looks at. Man looks at outward appearance the Lord looks at the heart. See, no wonder the Israelites are terrified. Man looks at outward appearance. And if you look at outward appearance, you would see a very scary Philistine. No wonder the Israelites are afraid. But God sees things differently. God looks at the heart and if you could, we could see things as God sees things, we would see things here very differently. This is the God who, back in 1 Samuel 5, caused Goliath's God, Dagon, to fall flat on his face in the temple and his head fell off. Do you remember that? This is the God who said back in 1 Samuel 2, it is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord Will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. How dare a pip squeak like Goliath spit in his face? It's not the Israelites who should be scared. Goliath is the one who should be worried. He has defied the God of the universe. And so, David the Lord's anointed, who has a heart after God's own heart, who sees things God's way, he comes to the scene of the battle and he tells the Israelites, don't be afraid. I'll fight for you. I will be your champion. I will be the man of the in-between who takes on Goliath for you. Now, notice what David doesn't say here. He doesn't say, come on, pull together, guys. We can defeat Goliath. He's not giving them a pep talk. No, he's saying, I will defeat Goliath for you. And as we read on next week, David wins the victory on behalf of God's people. And they don't even need to lift a finger. And like we saw last week, this is here to teach us something about Jesus. Jesus. Because that is exactly what Jesus did in his victory. Now we're going to hear more about Jesus' victory next week. But for now I just want us to to think about the fact that Jesus did not say, come on, pull your socks up, you can be good enough. We deserve the judgment of God. There is no way... We can avoid that in our own strength. But Jesus stepped in on our behalf and won our forgiveness. He has defeated sin for us. And so, like Israel, we don't need to be afraid. If David could say to Israel, don't be afraid, I will win for you, How much more can we trust Jesus when he says, not I will win, I have won. It is finished. I've taken your sin, it is gone. Death has been defeated. I've won for you and secured for you a place in the new creation. Don't be afraid. So when when we're afraid, and there's lots of things that we can be afraid about, the answer is to see things as God sees things. Paul says this in Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul's not saying there won't be death. He's not saying there won't be famine. He's not saying there won't be trouble. He's saying whatever the trouble, whatever the future, you don't have to worry about anything. Because God is actually at work for your good in everything. If you're worried about your finances, the answer is not to work harder. If you're worried about your future, the answer is not to get your investments right. If you're worried about sickness, the answer is not to read more books about cancer or to find the miracle cure. If you're worried about dying, the answer is not to desperately try to live life as long as you can. If you're worried about being alone, the answer is not to try and find the perfect partner. We have no control over how those things will turn out. But God has them under control. And the answer in all those things is to step back and look at what is the root cause of all our fears. And the root cause of all our fears is that we're not seeing things God's way. We're looking at what we can see. From God's point of view, he says his people don't need to worry about a thing. Do not worry, Jesus says. And the New Testament um, talks about this again and again and again. Just put in fear. Do a search of fear in the New Testament and it is all through the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul's talking about suffering and pain and our bodies failing and he says, you don't need to be afraid because in everything God is working for your good. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. See, it's not just that you don't have to fear your body failing. You can actually rejoice that God is using your suffering to bring about good. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. In Philippians 4, Paul's talking about being worried about money. And he says, even if you've got no money... You don't need to be scared. Philippians 4.12. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. We don't need to be afraid of anything. Even of death itself, Jesus says, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. See, there's only one thing that we might need to fear. That's the judgment of God. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't even need to fear that. Because that's the victory that Jesus has won. We're forgiven. We're God's children. Our eternity is certain. And if we see things from that perspective, we don't need to fear a thing. No, I'm convinced that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that Jesus on the cross achieved a victory for us that we could not have done on our own, that He's paid for our sin, that He's won our forgiveness, and that eternal life is now secure. And Father, thank you that nothing in this world, nothing in the present, nothing in the future, Nothing in heaven, nothing on earth can separate us from your love. And yet, Father, we confess that too easily we take our eyes off Jesus and we look to the things around us and we worry about them. And we fear the future. Because instead of seeing things your way, we start to see things with our eyes and we think that what matters is our financial security or our comfort or our happiness. Father, help us to see what matters is our relationship with you and our relationships with each other as we seek to encourage each other to follow Jesus. And Father, thank you for the confidence that we can have knowing that in all things, you work for the good of your people that you're working for the good of everyone here to make them more like Jesus. So this week, as we get up in the morning, as we, as we start to feel anxious about things, as we face situations that we're, we're concerned about, Father, please help us to cast our anxieties on you. Please help us to stop focusing on the things around us And look to the security that we have in Jesus. And and at those moments where we're, we're tempted to take our eyes off Jesus, please prompt us by your spirit. Remind us of this truth that we've seen this morning. Father, we don't want to live in fear. We want to live in joy, in peace, in the hope of eternal life. So, Father, please change our hearts and help us to see things your way. Amen.